This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. The icy cold chill covering much of the country has frozen the vaccine shipments, delaying shots. But we can't just blame the cold. The vaccine developers are having a rough time missing some target numbers. And the ingredients, those are scarce. We'll get into what's going on and if we can fix it. Did the vaccine makers promise too much or were we all just way too hopeful? optimism. Now, maybe we reach herd immunity sooner than what some experts have been telling us. Remember we told you about how scientists in Great Britain will infect people with the virus on purpose? We will look into more details into how that is all going to work. We start with vaccine distribution problems. Dr. Bruce Y. Lee, professor of health policy management at the City University of New York, where he runs public health informatics, computational and operations research. So, doctor, why are we having these troubles? Yeah, it's a combination of things. We already started with a, uh, a problematic supply chain, as we've seen you know, in December and January. There are a lot of problems with vaccines getting hung up in different locations. And you know, if an effective supply chain not only can deliver uh, vaccines in normal conditions, but has enough redundancy and flexibility to adapt to uh, challenging situations like weather problems, et cetera. So if the vaccine supply chain wasn't well planned in the first place, then it's not going to be functioning even when conditions are normal, and it's going to be even worse if uh, if conditions get bad. So I think we're seeing that right now. Are there too many steps in the process? Because at least with Moderna, there's like a, a person that's, you know, Moderna makes it, and then they send it to a supplier, and the supplier sends it out, and it goes to the feds, and it goes to the states. Have they ironed that out yet, or is that still the work in progress, too? Because for a while, we were talking, we were going, well, where did the vaccines actually go? Because no one was sure. <laughs> Yeah, the big issue is the the fact that it wasn't really coordinated at a national level uh, in December and January uh, because it was basically like handed off to the states and then let the states handle it. And you really need to have a situation where it's really coordinated nationally. So, you know, this is a perfect example. Certain states may have worse weather than others, so you might need to shift doses across different states in that manner. And if you don't have it coordinated at a national level, it's really hard to do that. Um, so that's something that, that needs to be fixed. Okay. So how do you fix it? Oh, well, one is really get a sense of where all the vaccines are, you know, where all the vaccination locations come up with a, a central tracking system and then, um, and then determine, well, we're going to provide the vaccines. We're going to organize the supply based on the actual demand. So you really need to, you know, the first thing you need to do is measure the supply chain. We need to know where where the weaknesses are, where the problems are, because as they always say, you can't fix something without having uh, the right measurements to know where things are actually going bad. What about the actual manufacturing? Because, you know, we just think it's so easy, but of course it's not. Um, Mm -hmm. Vials and needles and whatever goes into the serum that they actually put in the vial, like that all has to come together. Yeah, the, the, the process does take a little while. So the estimates are, you know, for the Pfizer vaccine, are 110 days for a whole production run, and then they're trying to get it down to 60 days. But you still have to like grow the bacteria and 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 the uh, the plasmids that will then generate the genetic material, which then can transcribe the mRNA, you know, the genetic material that you actually put inside the vaccines, and you have to put them within their lipid capsules and then put them into the vial. So there's all these different steps that you have to do and you have to do careful checks along the way to make sure things aren't contaminated. So that, that does take a while, 
so as I mentioned, you know, it can take anywhere between 60 to uh, 110 days for a production run, but they're trying to shorten that. Dr. Bruce Wiley, Executive Director, Public Health Informatics, Computational and Operations Research. Doctor, thanks. Let's look into the vaccine distribution delays a little more in depth. The mysterious element to all of this, the deals struck between developers like Pfizer and Moderna, which received big paydays from the federal government to turn out hundreds of millions of doses. Dr. Anand Parekh, chief medical officer of the Bipartisan Policy Center, used to be deputy assistant secretary for the Health and Human Services Department in both the Bush and Obama administrations. So, doctor, does anyone know what these contracts actually say, what they're all about? Well, there's not a lot that's transparent, and uh, you know we're hearing more and more. Um, certainly, with the new administration, they are also uh, learning, um, and there have been some delays. Uh, but I would say that you know I think that the news is is also somewhat positive. Uh, you know, both Pfizer and Moderna uh, have said that that they uh, expect to have a hundred million doses of vaccine ready by the end of the first quarter, and actually Pfizer's at 120 million. So that's about 220 million doses of vaccine that both of those manufacturers have committed by March 31st. Now, if you look at where we are today, about 73 million doses that's been distributed, that would mean that just shy of about 150 million doses ought to be ready in the next six weeks. Um, and, and you know, if you do the math there, that's about 25 million doses a week, um, you know, substantially more than what's being uh, distributed per week right now. And so uh, I think we are at a point um, probably, you know, right around turning the corner, um, particularly when we get into March, that I I think we're going to see substantially more vaccine out there. And then there's, of course, a question that just because something is distributed uh, doesn't mean that, that, that shots are going in arms in terms of administration. But there again, I think, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were at about 30 percent of vaccines distributed were administered. uh, And now we're upwards of 75 percent. So I think you're seeing slow progress here. um, And I think you'll probably see a little bit more evenness moving forward. Yeah, I mean, progress is good, even if it's slow. But for all of us that, you know, we're hearing these numbers that were going to come, you know, let's rewind the clock a a month or two. Did we all kind of just let hope get ahead of us a little bit thinking okay when i see these 100 million here 100 million there that's going to be like right on day one i'm going to be able to go out and because we wanted to but that's not actually how it works practically i think so i think the messaging was was likely inconsistent you know you hear things from the manufacturers and then you hear things from the federal scientific agencies and then if the Trump administration, the Biden administration. So uh, I, I think if, if you're not tracking this on a daily basis, um, it, you, it's very easy. Um, you know, you hear all these numbers and uh, you don't know really what, what to make of it. And I think it's fair to say uh, that there was a lack of clarity uh, over the last couple of months in terms of, of, of how much uh, was, was projected and how much was promised. And I think the clarity is now uh, you know, is 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 there that, uh, and I think President Biden has, has said this that, you know, by the end of the summer, by the end of July, just from these two manufacturers, we should have 600 million doses, uh, and that doesn't include Johnson and Johnson. It had its own delays. It's right now, as, as you know, um, before the FDA. Uh, hopefully, that vaccine will get approved. Will be shown to be safe and, and efficacious. 
that's just going to really trickle into the market in the month of March. But but even Johnson and Johnson has committed to 100 million doses. So uh, I think I think the numbers that we're hearing um, more recently, I think we can probably uh, feel pretty good about them. Um, certainly, you know, this is a very complex process, as, as you all have talked about. Um, you know, making vaccines are not easy, particularly some of these new platforms, these mRNA platforms. But you're also hearing about sort of FDA, you know, being quicker in terms of its actions. You know, how do you extract more doses from vials? You're hearing use of the Defense Production Act um, uh, in in specific occasions. So I think you are seeing a, a little bit more in terms of progress and coordination. But I want to go back to what you said earlier about lack of transparency. There's usually a reason why there's a lack of transparency. Uh, By definition, it means that different parties are trying to hide something. What is it that they're trying to hide? I think think transparency probably in this regard relates to just the uncertainty of, of, first of all, the mRNA platform for Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, We have to remember this is sort of a multi-stage process. and you hear a company, Pfizer, Moderna, what, what you don't hear is that uh, the manufacturing process, there are many different partners, uh, in, in many cases, many different companies. Um, each step uh, is occurring at different locations. There, There's ancillary material to the vaccine, syringes, vials. So this is a pretty complicated um, process. And I, I think, um, you know, I think a lot of the companies enthusiastically made some projections uh, and, um, you know, and, and this is sort of, this is new, uh, and, and some of those proje- projections haven't matched up absolutely with, with reality. So you've seen some backtracking. So I think it's probably initially a lack of transparency, less that, that there are entities trying to hide things and more so, um, uncertainty in the process leading to revisions in, in projections. Dr. Anand Parekh, Chief Medical Officer of the Bipartisan Policy Center. Even with vaccine delays, millions of people in the U.S. have received at least one dose. If you combine that with the millions who have already been infected and likely built up some defense to the virus, could we be closer to so-called herd immunity than we think? Dr. David Dowdy, epidemiologist, infectious disease investigator at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. So, Doctor, your thoughts on that, that so many people have already had it and now we have vaccines, so maybe we get to a better place in the next couple of months? Yeah, so so that's a great question. And thanks uh, for having me on. Um, I, I think that uh, the thing to, to recognize here is that um, herd immunity is not uh, just some magic number that once we get to this point, that suddenly the, the pandemic goes away. Uh, what's probably happening, at least in my opinion, is that we have some people out there who have been... Um, you know, having more and more contact with uh, with others, and then other people who've been much more locked down, and and among that that population that has been having um, an increased number of contacts, we probably are seeing some effects of of you know so-called herd or population immunity, but that doesn't mean that if we uh, just suddenly open everything else back up, that suddenly the the rest of the population will be immune, right? So. So even though we are seeing some effects from from population immunity and and some small effects from the vaccine, uh, they only are working because we uh, we are still having other um, 
you know, restrictions and uh, and behavioral changes in place. I mean, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the this sort of magic number, and I, I put magic in, in quotes, of herd immunity, doesn't it differ depending on the particular pathogen you're dealing with? I mean, even Dr. Fauci has has sort of changed the figure. He sort of moved the goal, the, the uh, goalpost a few times about what he would consider herd immunity to be. So it does depend on the pathogen. I, I wouldn't say that, uh, that Dr. Fauci has moved the goalposts. I think that our knowledge of the, the virus is probably changing over time. Um, but but again, the, the magic number is not just a factor of the pathogen. It's also a factor of what we as a, as a society are doing. So if we as a society are um, doing our best not to, to interact too closely with too many people, have big gatherings, etc., then that number can be lower than if we're all just going out and uh, living life as uh, as we normally would. I guess if we're going to paint with a broad brush, maybe the people who have had it already were a group of people who were more likely to spread it or be exposed to it. And then a lot of lockdown people, 65 plus, if they're getting their vaccines, that could be how this would play out. Of course, that's all in like a perfect world scenario. And it doesn't factor in the longer we go, the more fatigue there is. And someone who tried to make it is still going to go out and see somebody eventually. Yeah, I, I so I want to be careful that we we don't um, you know stigmatize people who have gotten the the disease, right? I mean, people get this disease because it's a a very widespread uh, infectious disease, and and everyone is uh, is breathing the same air. Um, but I think that that broad brushstrokes, uh, what you're saying is. Um, at least partially correct. But I think we also have to, as you're saying, recognize that people are going to get fatigued and, and we need to find ways to uh, to support people in, uh, A, maintaining their, their distance when necessary and, and B, providing some some outlets to um, to engage in life, uh, but do so, do so safely. I, I, let me raise another thing. I mean, because, uh, you know, as you know, we do so little in this country uh, genome sequencing to find out about variants. Uh, we really don't know that much about what variants are out there in, in this country, right? Uh, is it possible there's been so much discussion about potentially more pernicious variants like the one from South uh, uh, Africa or Brazil? Is it possible also that there may be uh, more variants that are spreading out there that are actually more benign, and maybe that's why the numbers are going down? Um, so I think that over time, viruses tend to mutate, and they tend to mutate in ways that help make them more transmissible. Um, so I doubt that we're seeing takeover by uh, less transmissible variants over time. No, no, I'm not saying less um, transmissible. I'm saying I'm saying less symptomatic. Less symptomatic. Um, so. I think while that is is possible, um, I think that it's it's more likely because we're we're seeing declines in in COVID cases, not just in the U.S. but um, really throughout much of the world. I think it's much more likely relating to the the behavior changes that people have implemented. So, for example, we've had the by far the mildest flu season um, ever because um, people have been staying home. So I think it, it's, a, it's a combination of, of the behaviors that, that people have adopted 
and slow buildup of, of immunity. I, there may be some component of, uh, you know, maybe more benign variants, but I would not put that as a, as a major contributor. What about factoring in the idea that so many more of us have had it and either didn't realize it or just had a mild case and the numbers are, you know, astronomically high, but they're even higher than what we actually have, you know, logs, because this went through a lot of people without them knowing. Correct. Yes. So that's that's exactly right. So we, we probably do have some level of immunity from people who um, who had either asymptomatic or very mild disease. I think that our best estimates are probably that one in three Americans have, have had this disease by now. So it's, it's a lot. And, and I think that is contributing to the decline. Dr. David Dowdy, epidemiologist, infectious disease investigator, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Coming up after this short break, people will get sick on purpose in the name of science. We told you in a previous episode how some scientists in Great Britain will infect people on purpose with the virus to study it. Now we're learning more about exactly how this is going to work. WBBM's Cisco Cotto talks to Bloomberg News health reporter Michelle Cortez about the human challenge trial. It's called a challenge because they aren't just letting nature take its course and these people will be exposed if they happen to come across the virus. That's how human trials naturally happen. As we talked about before many times, when we're talking about a vaccine, there these people aren't, or the virus, you don't know that you're going to be exposed to it. This is called a challenge trial because they deliberately challenge you with it. There is no chance here. There's no you know risk of, of maybe you'll get it and maybe you won't. They are literally challenging you with the virus itself to see if you're going to become infected. And what they're doing is they're trying to go at the smallest dose possible, the smallest amount of virus, so that we'll see at what point people become infected, how little you have to come into contact with in order for you to actually fall sick. And they're paying money, too. I mean, so it's uh, it's not like they're just asking people to do this out of the kindness of their hearts. They're actually putting some money out there. They are putting some money out there. It's, it's a very controversial topic, in fact. This is the first challenge trial we're seeing with COVID-19, and they're, they have to be very careful in how they do it because you don't want to pay so much money that people are incentivized to do something that's going to put themselves in serious danger for cash, right? Like, that's why we don't allow people to sell their organs, for example. So they'll give them some money. It will probably be a nominal amount. We don't know how much yet, you know, maybe a few hundred pounds. It's in the UK, uh, maybe less, maybe a little bit more, but not a lot. They're also being really careful to go with very young and healthy volunteers. So that we're talking about only 90 people. So it's not a big, a big event. And they're aged 18 to 30. So that's a, an age range where most people do not fall seriously ill. And again, it's a very small amount of a virus that they're going to be exposed to. These people have not been vaccinated. So it's not an idea of will the vaccines work in this first group. It's just how much virus do you need to be exposed to. Thanks so much for all the latest detail. Michelle Cortez, health reporter for Bloomberg News. The Earth is quieter now. Scientists measured a drop of up to 50 percent in 2020 in so-called ambient noise generated by humans traveling and factories humming following all the lockdowns that went into effect. Lower background noise during lockdowns also means small earthquakes that otherwise would not be observed have been now detected in some places. It's just a trash truck going by. Yeah. It wasn't a quake. <laughs> you can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.